0: You're listening to the True to Life podcast, a show where we discuss life and analyze ideas as followers of Jesus in a post-Christian context. The True to Life podcast is hosted by Aaron and Carson, two ordinary guys learning how to live with purpose in a changing world. Together, we'll discover how to be present with God and others in a way that is true to life.
1: Hello and welcome to the True to Life podcast. I hope you are doing well today. have the pleasure of having Carson Rogers with me. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm fine, and it is a pleasure to be with you, as always. Excellent. Um, today is a different sort of introduction because it's actually a preamble to a conversation that we had a couple of days uh, earlier uh, with a gentleman named Josh uh, Dr. Josh DeKaiser. He was kind enough to come on our podcast in the... Uh, series that we're doing on deconstruction. And so you'll remember that the first podcast we did on deconstruction, I uh, had uh, Johnny Chanel on, and he was uh, kind enough to share his thoughts from the perspective of a a Christian, uh, a believer, someone who shares uh, pretty much the worldview and the convictions of Carson and I. But he had gone through a process of of uh, thoughtful deconstruction and kind of thought through the, the tenets of deconstruction, the implications, and has has landed at a place where he pretty much agrees with what you hear um, on this podcast pretty frequently, uh, uh, pretty straight down the line, Southern Baptist, uh, evangelical, uh, pretty conservative in his theology. Um, but the person that you'll hear today, uh, Dr. DeKaiser, has actually gone through um, a process of deconstructing and come to a... Different place um, in his convictions, uh, as you'll hear, he started out um, sharing a lot of Southern Baptist convictions and sharing a lot of the things that that Carson and I believe. Um, but after he went through his process of deconstruction, he came out in a a very different place. So uh, we just wanted to do this quick intro um, to say how much we appreciated him coming on, and uh, as as Carson will go into a little bit more depth here in just a moment. Um, we make clear uh, in our interview with Dr. DeKaiser that obviously we don't believe everything that he believes. We don't agree with him in lockstep, but it was very important for us to hear from his own words um, what he does believe. Um, and this this was not an antagonistic interview. It wasn't an argumentative one. We just really were curious and wanted to hear uh, directly from him what his journey had looked like um, so that we could interact uh, honestly and thoughtfully uh with his convictions um so Carson what would what would be some of your introductory thoughts to this interview
0: yeah so um you mentioned you know us wanting to be able to um to learn from him and i think that is kind of what um what I would I would point out is, you know, for us this was a learning experience, and he told us that that was something that he, you know, had genuinely appreciated was that um, this was a really open conversation, um, very honest and candid conversation, uh, but one that was done in good faith, uh, one that was done charitably, and I, I think on both sides was was enjoyable. Um, we definitely learned you know, from him, uh, enjoyed learning from him. Um, even if we disagree on some very, what we would consider theologically very serious issues. Um, you know, Dr. DeKaiser wouldn't, you know, come down at the same place. I don't think as we would, uh, in terms of the, um, you know, the, the inerrancy or the, you know, infallibility of scripture. Um, and his story is one of, you know, going from, you know, well, I guess we should point out first, um, Dr. DeKaiser is actually uh, from the Netherlands and uh, lives in the Netherlands. He had spent some time in the U.S. Um, but being born in the Netherlands, he actually was raised in a what he would consider, and I think we would probably agree, uh, was a conservative Christian household. Um, he kind of describes it as more of an American-style evangelical upbringing almost um and you know he actually uh went through this process of deconstruction where he very nearly became atheist um and he ended up somewhere um retaining his faith but uh but very much more liberal theologically um uh lib- more liberal than he had started but also i think more liberal uh theologically than the or i would be um, certainly so, um, it, it, it's just another example of kind of, uh, the process that people going through deconstruction have gone through. Um, I know I, it, it brought to mind for me, uh, other conversations I've had with, with other friends who have gone through, um, kind of the same process, uh, as, uh, Dr. DeKaiser went through, um. And so uh, f- I think the, the takeaway is um, not that we need to necessarily learn theologically or scripturally, you know, uh, not that we would be, you know, in, in complete lockstep, like you said, but that there's a process here and that there's internal questions at work in the mind and heart of a person going through this process that we definitely can learn from and that we should learn from so that we, you know, as we encounter people, uh, that are going through this process, not only can we help them to feel safe and feel valued and, uh, help them through this journey, but we can be a spiritual, you know, support for them. Um, in so far as that's, uh, that's possible and appropriate. So, um, so yeah, like you, I would just say, thank you uh, to Dr. DeKazer for opening up to us like that, um, for, uh, for helping us, uh, put this interview together, uh, for meeting us. Well, I guess it was, <laughs> we met with Dr. DeKazer at 5am in the morning, but, uh, I guess it wasn't as big of a deal for him as it was, uh, for us time wise, but, but we do appreciate his time. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's about all I have to say.
1: Okay, great. Well, uh, well, in a moment, we'll jump into that interview. And um, I guess just one more thing. It's it's always important to Carson and I to recognize that not everybody is going to agree with us all the time. And um, to everyone who's listening, not everybody's going to agree with you all the time. So it's it's really important to think through, like, how are you going to have conversations with people you disagree with? How are you going to have conversations that are not simply argumentative and not simply trying to um, win a fight, but to learn about another person, to learn how to love them well. And then eventually once once you've gotten to a point in your relationship where you can uh, disagree and exchange ideas and try to change each other's minds, um, that's all well and good. Um, but there's sometimes, especially when you're first meeting a person, you um, just to learn about them, to hear their ideas. And that's very much what this interview was. It was a it's the first time that we'd spoken to him. And so um, we always just want to model love and charity in the way that we interact with people, and especially the way that we interact with people uh, with whom we disagree. Um, obviously that shouldn't be confused um, for an endorsement of an idea that we would disagree with. Um, but I think Carson and I very much both appreciated um, Josh's openness and his willingness to, um, to just take us through his life story when it comes to deconstruction and to honestly share with us what that had looked like for him. Um, I think he was very, uh, vulnerable and kind, both with his, his time and his openness and his, uh, honesty with his thoughts. So, um, hopefully, uh, we can just model what it looks like to, to talk to someone with whom you disagree lovingly and charitably um, and then really think through what they had to say, um, and that's what Carson and I will do in part three of our deconstruction series. Uh, we'll we'll come back together and we'll talk about uh, the interview that uh, I did with Gianni, and then the interview that we did with uh, Doctor DeKaiser here, and then Carson and I will wrap up with with our thoughts on deconstruction, and um, hopefully put all that together in a, a helpful way um, so that we can think through this phenomenon of deconstruction that we see in our culture. Um, and think through some ways that our faith can be uh strengthened and that we can edify one another and grow closer to God as a result so um Carson, anything else before we jump into this interview? uh no, I, I would just echo what you said you know I, th- I feel like that's one of
0: my favorite things about this podcast is um you know when we've taken the time to talk with people who we don't always agree with and and w- you know, you and I don't always agree with one another. I feel like, you know, one of the things from the outset that we wanted to model is, um, you know, having conversations with others, um, as humanly as possible and, you know, not just arguing inside of an echo chamber, um, not looking for, for zingers or, you know, points from, you know, people on, on our side of the fence or, or whatever. Um, but just to be, uh, to have a, a conversation, uh, with somebody who God loves. And, uh, so I think this interview, uh, kind of captured that and reminded me why I enjoy doing it. So, um, but yeah, with that,
1: I think we're, uh, we're ready to get into the interview. All right. That sounds good. And, um, I guess I will talk to you again in uh part three of this. Sounds good. All right. Take care, buddy. Hey, hello, everybody, and welcome to the True to Life podcast. This is Aaron Schaefer. I hope you're doing well today. Um, I have a special guest, uh, Josh, uh, Dr. Josh DeKaiser, who has been kind enough to uh to join me in the series that we're doing on deconstruction. Um, you may remember that uh Carson and I and uh, Gianni referenced an article that he had written that I'd come across when I was researching uh deconstruction last time, and I thought Instead of talking about that article in too much depth, uh, let's talk to the man who wrote it. Uh, I thought he had some really good things to say, and um, I I don't know Dr. DeKaiser very well, so I'm excited to learn a little bit more about him today and obviously uh, hear some of his thoughts on deconstruction. Um, One thing you'll notice as we go through is that we come from um, a somewhat different background, I think, and I think that we land at some different places in our thoughts But, you know, I'm excited to hear about um, where he comes to and his thoughts um, and then share a good conversation today. Uh, As Carson and I always talk about, there's a there's a lot of richness that you get um, in thoughts when everyone does not necessarily agree on everything. And um, if we're wrong in some places, we always want to hear that and be sharpened and then hopefully also be able to bring our perspective to others as well. So um, having said that, uh, Dr. DeKaiser, hello and welcome.
2: Hello, Aaron. Thank you for having me on your show.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure. Um, Like I said, I ran across you and some of your articles that you'd written specifically on deconstruction, but I've seen that you've written a lot uh, more broadly than that as well, and it looks like you you think and um, engage fairly broadly as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, who you are, what your academic background is, and um, a little bit about what brought you to this uh, topic of deconstruction?
2: Yeah, Um, I'm from the Netherlands, and I did my BA in religious studies uh, in Belgium, country uh, south of us, at an evangelical institution, um, but sort of, that that was many years ago, in the 90s, Um, then eventually uh, ended up in advertising as a graphic designer and uh, art director But somehow, uh, I still had this intellectual thirst, and it was kindled by listening to um, apologetic lectures. And um, at one point, I said to myself, you know what, you actually need to do something about it. And so I remember applying for Bethel Seminary in 2008, being absolutely sure that I would never get in. But I thought, if I don't try, I'll, I'll never know. And um I was admitted uh, to their um, Christian thought program <clears throat> and I thought I was gonna do a lot of apologetics there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh it turned out it wasn't that much of apologetics because the 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 guy who had um um came up with the program, come up with the program and who was the main apologetics teacher, um had just left for another position within the university. And so there was a change in program and it was more open, more culturally engaged, um, but still with a lot of emphasis on philosophy, I would say. And um, during my time at Bethel uh, Seminary, I started having more and more questions. They were not only intellectual, but there were some family circumstances that um, were very challenging for me. And um, I, I think my eyes were open for the issue of racism and how it plays out in America. Well, I'm not saying we don't have racism in Europe. Uh, We definitely do. But it's it's of a different kind and of a different magnitude in America. And so seeing that and seeing how my evangelical faith was intertwined with this racism in in ways I could not really pinpoint, but I I sensed there was something. Um, All those questions combined sort of meant that I started deconstructing my faith. And I did not really... Read many of the evangelical theologians that I thought I would be reading and I jettisoned the whole idea of apologetics as a sort of dead-end effort and um, in towards my end of my studies uh, the opportunity or well someone challenged me to to do a PhD program and um, so I applied at an institution in the same city, in, in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota. And that was a Lutheran seminary. And I remember going there and um, letting everyone know that I was admitted. And uh, people were saying, be careful, because it's a, you know, it's a liberal institution. Turned out, it wasn't that liberal after all. Um, there were quite a few more conservatively oriented Lutherans there as well. Um, but all in all, yes, it was more liberal than evangelicalism. And uh, there I decided right from the outset to, to work on the dissertation on the theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And um, for, for that process, for that research project, I had to go deeply into Luther's theology. And so I went back to the Reformation and um, uh, discovered uh, Luther's theology of the cross and saw how much it was at odds with Sort of the Baptist, but especially the Calvinistic origins of my theology. You know, I'm I'm from Holland, originally a very Calvinistic nation. Mm -hmm. And so, how much it was at odds with Calvinism, and and that the original Reformation was actually quite something quite different. And um, so, I took that with me, and that opened me up for an entirely new world of theology. And yeah, eventually. uh, I embraced radical theology. I don't know if you've heard of radical theology, but that's kind of my thing, the theology of the cross and radical theology. And so just instead, maybe I should add this, instead of just rejecting my Christian faith, and I think at one point I was very much on my way to become an, uh, a Christianity-denouncing atheist, um, instead of doing that, I was able to retranslate. um the apparatus of, of theology and the content of my Christian faith into something different. That doesn't, as far as I see, it doesn't set me at odds with um, more conservative forms of theology, but it keeps the conversation open.
1: Very nice. Thank you for that intro. Um, so obviously a, a lot to talk about there, um, but I'm still, before we, uh, are are done introducing you what what has been your experience in the Netherlands i think you're probably talking to a mostly american audience here do you see as far as the the cultural and and theological conversations that are going on any broad difference right now in in that context than you might find over here since you're probably broadly familiar with uh with my context much more than i am with yours
2: yeah so i went to um I went to the United States mm-hmm. in 2009 um as an a European evangelical, I would say something like that. but it's an evangelicalism that is very much rooted in in American culture, mm-hmm. so there was some knowledge of America, some openness toward America, and I returned as someone who was no longer an evangelical, and then coming back it was very difficult, I would say. Because my entire network, my entire life, had been evangelical. And I come back and it's like, I can't do this gig anymore. Um, I I remember actually trying to contact some um, uh, institutions, uh, theological institutions, to see if, you know, with my American PhD, I I would find entry somewhere. But that proved to be very difficult. Because, you know, as we all know, it's it's all about being networked. And I was not networked. I was this strange Dutch person that nobody had heard of. And so I was out of touch with my evangelical community and uh, not being able to enter any mainstream or liberal um, theological education. So that whole enterprise eventually stranded and um, I went back to advertising or communications this time. um, Lost my job after a year and then decided to go for myself. So now I'm a copywriter. Um, doing something that I've actually been doing for a very long time, writing in English and Dutch, and um, using my combined skills of of research experience and advertising to forge new ways ahead and make new friends and, and build a new network. So I think I'm at a good spot right now. Um, but for the past four years, I returned in 2017. It's been quite hard. Um, the conversation... Uh, Is very different here Um, um, like what what happened in 2016 in America was a big deal with with, uh, Donald Trump announcing his candidacy and I remember being completely shocked and appalled when all my fellow evangelicals were going after him I'm just gonna you know give it to you honestly and 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 I still have even to even today I have uh, friends who are evangelicals and And I remember talking to one of my friends with whom I had coffee every week in a coffee shop. And, um, you know, with my usual banter and my usual straightforwardness, I I started saying some, like, pretty strong things about Donald Trump until I realized that my friend was getting upset and defensive. And then it was only then that somehow the coin dropped. And I realized, oh, my God, he's actually for Trump. He's going to vote for Trump. And. Some of my other friends did as well. So um, in America, the, uh, the opposites are very strong. And mm-hmm. um, and in, in Holland, of course, we, we have not had Donald Trump. There is some uh, politics has become a little more populist.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So we have a few populist dudes around. But it's not at the same level of what is happening in America. And, in, and, and why well, America is at a watershed moment in its culture war, there are basically different nations at play, national identities at play in America, and they're going to fight it out. And so the next few years will determine the future of America. Mm -hmm. But none of that over here in Holland.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to see from your perspective the the cultural commentary on America because you're you're right, it, it almost does feel like two different nations sometimes, and then even within mainstream Christianity with with the political divides that we encounter. Uh, that's something that um, my co-host Carson and I have discussed a lot, just trying to understand the, the different ways that even people who agree almost 100% on theology and where they even feel like they fall on the political uh, spectrum could choose such different candidates or with a with a clear conscience, one way or the other, back a specific candidate, and uh, that it really, yeah. I think, took a lot of people by surprise. The amount of polarization that crept in, especially in 2016, um, it's been fascinating. It's been a bit horrifying just to see the extent of the the divide that it's caused in in Christianity. But goodness, yeah, um, even
2: within your own denomination, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, your uh, one person just left um, his position uh, what is his name da- Daniel Moore or uh, Russell
1: Moore name? most likely is who you're uh, the head of Moore, the ERLC yep
2: uh, yeah evidently against Trump uh, if I remember correctly mm-hmm. and then it was another reasonably prominent person um, uh, oh Beth Moore mm-hmm. and then you've had um, uh, Al Mohler's system, but that's a couple of years back, I think, who, um, who went his own way. So even within your own denomination, there's not like uh, unity on this, <laughs> like of Donald Trump.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's certainly uh, it's certainly been interesting. <laughs> I suppose it's a good a good catch-all term there. Um, but yeah, I think something that we're trying so hard to think through is how do we retain. Christian unity when we honestly are very divided in our politics and as a as I'm sure you're very familiar with and you've you've walked through like the whole the whole point of Christianity from outside is that people should see that we're Christians because because we love one another as Christ has loved the church and uh lamentably that's often been uh been lacking in the way that we've treated each other politically especially lately so I I hope against hope that we can get back to a point where uh Christian uh conversation and behavior is characterized more by that that love of Christ than it is by partisan politics for sure. Um All right, well that's uh I think that's a good intro. Let's uh let's call that the first segment there and when we come back let's jump into uh to deconstruction here. All right, and we're back. And in this second segment, Carson Rogers has joined us. Hello, Carson. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm uh, I'm doing just fine, buddy. How are you doing? Not bad at all. Uh, for anyone who's interested, um, Dr. DeKaiser is in the Netherlands, so it's it's about a cheery 11.15 uh, a.m. for him there. And for us, it's about a even cheerier 5.15 a.m. over here on the <laughs> East Coast. And uh, Carson, you're sounding remarkably chipper. Oh,
0: thanks, buddy. <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to pretend like you're actually being honest and not. Uh, oh, I'm not, but okay, yeah. Right. Just just so we're we're on the record, that's cool. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, well, Carson, I'll I'll let you jump in and uh and talk for a moment. I think you had a couple of things you wanted to to run past Josh before he comes yeah. back in. Yeah. So,
0: uh, Josh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. And um, you know, I was uh, listening to you know, the end of uh, your conversation with Aaron in the, in the first uh, segment. And you talked about your own, um, you know, your own journey away from evangelicalism and being that you're in the Netherlands um, I'm because this is a conversation even that's happening now in uh, the American church um uh, you know, I was reading articles even, uh, recently, um, about how evangelicalism is kind of a failed idea. Um, and, um, just there, there are some people who would, uh, very aggressively, boldly say, yes, absolutely. I'm an evangelical. Um, others who, you know, or kind of trending away from that idea, um, here in the States. And I'm curious, uh, from your experience and from your perspective, uh, not being, you know, uh, an American and not, uh, being so wrapped up in, uh, that kind of, uh, culture that goes along with being, um, an evangelistic, uh, American, uh, I'm curious to know what your definition of evangelicalism would be, um, because um, it, it makes me wonder. You know, would that be the same as some of the uh, the folks that would uh, that would talk about it here? Um, I would just be interested to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, great question, actually. Um, and I think you will find uh, many different opinions about that. So when I started critiquing evangelicalism toward the end of my time in America. I remember one of my professors from Bethel Seminary who is from Korean descent to, to want to make a case for like actual evangelicalism or like evangelicalism isn't just owned by America. Um, and for me, I wasn't entirely sure if I could agree with, with that because I think uh, evangelicalism is very much wrapped up with, uh, with American culture and with a certain uh, philosophical narrative and outlook on life. <clears throat> and um, if, if I look, uh, for instance, at my Dutch culture, I grew up as an evangelical, but I always felt very felt very much out of place uh, in my own culture. And I sometimes regretted that my parents ever left the Reformed church, because would they have stayed, we would have been in something that belongs to Dutch culture, and it would still be Christian. Um, And it was only much later, um, maybe after returning from America, that I realized, look, okay, I'm not an American, but actually I was an American evangelical. I grew up in the Netherlands as an American evangelical. And so how does that work? Well, we believe many of the same things. Um, All our leaders and our role models were Americans. Um, I can think of George Verler from Operation Mobilization, if that name says anything to you. Um, and I'm still in conversation with that man, a great guy. Um, people like Billy Graham, um, Francis Schaeffer, name Schaefer, there you go. Um, so old, our, our heroes were American evangelicals, and um, I tried to model my thought after their theology and, and their outlook on life. So. Um being an evangelical, growing up an evangelical in, in the Netherlands was very much being an, an American evangelical. And the music, the Christian music that we listened to, and I did not always listen to Christian music, but when I did, it was American gospel artists. So, uh, so what would be my definition of an evangelical? That's so hard to say. There are so many definitions. Um, I think one of the core concepts would be um, an emphasis on the Bible as the word of God that you could say well that's the same thing with calvinism and there's a slight difference um, in american evangelicalism in that um, there's a very literalist approach to the bible as the word of god and it's verbally inspired and all that Uh, another very important theme in american in evangelicalism as i experienced it which i believe was american evangelicalism is the uh, the eschatological expectation the premillennial uh, attitude to the, the rapture all that stuff that was very much part of our thinking in our and our life um and i would say um salvation as being primarily spiritual in nature with a post life or an afterlife focus be that being the most important and um Sort of a very strong emphasis on the vertical aspect of uh, of salvation, being reconciled with God uh, through Jesus Christ. So I think those are some of the core concepts. And then there is some political stuff that, that's actually quite weird. And uh, there we we, we as Dutch evangelicals or European evangelicals may be different from American evangelicals. Um, in that, of course, we have never had <clears throat> well, we have a very long history in Europe. Of state and church being intertwined, but as evangelicals, we are always a very much a marginalized group um, outside of culture, being very cultural in many ways. Um, so we do not have a very well-developed idea of uh, politics and and religion as such. We just think that people should, you know, in their private groups. Uh, Think about Jesus, pray to Jesus, learn about Jesus, and evangelize, and that's how we win the world for Christ. And I think American evangelicalism has some decidedly uh, very strong ideas about how that is involved in politics. And I think the big mistake of American evangelicalism evangelicalism is power politics. It's trying to win the game by, you know, by determining the law or getting power up there
0: and, and sort of force the rest of the country to close. Yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting. Um, I, I see that, um, at work a lot in, even on, in our own denomination, there was a uh, I don't know if you, you know this, but, um, our denomination, our convention just had their annual meeting, uh, this past week. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, um, our outgoing, uh, denominational president said, uh, was that when, uh, you know, historically speaking, when, um, when the church and, uh, the state, uh, get in bed together, uh, you know, in politics, it's not really, um, it, it's usually the church that gets pregnant. Um, that the, the church, uh, becomes more influenced by politics than politics does by the church. Um, and you know, which is interesting as, as Baptist, that's one of the, um, you know, the fundamental tenets of, uh, you know, of, of Baptist theology is a very strict separation, uh, between church and state. And, uh, it's, it's interesting, um, to see the role that, that politics plays, um, in evangelicalism and even within, you know, Baptist life. Um, And I I think, you know, for, for some of us, uh, myself included my cards on the table, um, you know, I I really like the, the idea of a a separated church and state. Um, And as a Baptist, it's, it's really, it makes me scratch my head sometimes, um, the role that politics actually uh, plays in our, in our, um, you and know, our experience in the church. So uh, thank you for answering that. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, maybe, maybe I can add something to that. So my point of view is that there should absolutely be a very strict separation of church and state. But it doesn't mean that the church is not political. <clears throat> the church is extremely political. And in order to fulfill its political role, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to fulfill its political role, it is absolutely vital that the church is not involved in politics or in sharing of power. Because the moment the church shares power, it is just like you said, Carson, the church gets pregnant and is dominated by political control and doesn't is not no longer capable of fulfilling its role of critiquing society precisely in the political realm. So a church that is separated from the state is a church that can tell the state what it is doing wrong. And so, in that sense, the church can function as a function
0: for society. Yeah. So, almost, um, uh, it gives the ability to to work, or the, uh, the church to work in a more
1: prophetic role, I guess,
0: um, with its relation to the, to the state. Okay. Very good.
1: Yeah, and Josh, I think that's one thing that as I was reading some of the things you wrote, uh, you used that term, a prophetic role, a few times that I'd seen. And uh, I, I can see now where you, you get that leaning from. Um, Josh, How I think the word prophetic is one that can lead to a little bit of confusion sometimes. So I'd love to hear you flesh out what you would mean by that. So if you say the church is to act in a prophetic role, what would you mean by that?
2: Yeah, so I come from a kind of evangelical that is very much Southern baptist like but it also did have a fair amount of brethren influence mm-hmm. and a fair amount of charismatic influence. So back in my evangelical days, my, my ideas about prophetic ministry was that you would actually, actually hear the word from God or, you know, that the Spirit would impress the message on you and you would then speak on behalf of God. I think differently about prophetic uh they're prophetic now, and, and I think that the prophets in the Bible were always a critical voice that addressed the power, the power structures in the state. And if you look at the Old Testament prophets, um, so the way, the way we evangelicals tend to um, filter it is that it's always about the relationship with God. Get rid of your idols and return to pure worship, and you're restoring your relationship with God but we forget a huge subtext or maybe the actual text here. That is that the relationship with God is only right when there is justice in the nation and then the poor are not oppressed. And so if you reread the prophets and then look at the emphasis on justice in society, and of course we're talking about pre-modern societies there in ancient Israel, and so there is no separation of the religious and the political or the cultural. That's something that we've done after the Enlightenment. And for good reason, that's okay. But in, in those societies, the religious and the political and the economic were all intertwined. And so when a prophet um, speaks out against power, abuse of power, that is always in the name of God because it can only be in the name of God. And so already in the Old Testament, even though on the one hand, God is co-opted for power by the kings, and God is at the same time the one who is on the side of the poor. And so the prophetic is that voice in society that speaks out against injustice, speaks out against abuse of power, um, it also speaks out against uh, institutional um, um, stagnation, and... Um, and it is always something that speaks for renewal. It's kind of a revolutionary voice, force, the prophetic think. And so for me, a prophet in society is not somebody who's a Christian or speaks on behalf of the God of Israel. It is somebody who has a keen eye for what is going on and speaks out against it. And there, are, there will be multiple voices that sometimes even conflict to some extent. But the main thrust of the prophetic in a, in a given society is that we need to get a world that is more just. So even atheists can be prophetic. And I actually believe in so far God is real that an atheist can speak on behalf of that God because God wants justice. Hmm.
1: That's very interesting and very well, very well said for that perspective. Um, Carson, what do you think? Would you push back at all against what Josh said or... Would you see a prophetic voice as being broadly the same thing from your perspective?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds, um, kind of similar to the, uh, to the idea of, um, what it would mean to be prophetic, um, from, I think what Aaron and I's perspective would be, um, I, the, you know, I, I think, um, from the way that we're accustomed to it and I, I'll kind of go point back to um, one of the things that um, that Josh had mentioned about evangelicalism is a um, a very strong understanding of the Bible as the authoritative word of God um, and so from from my perspective from uh, I, I think I speak for Aaron on this as well um, you know we would say that, Um, the, that a prophet, um, or somebody with a a prophetic voice, um, would have to speak as a, um, as, as somebody, uh, whose authority is not their own, that their authority is, is rooted in, uh, in that word. Um, but with that addition, I would say, um, you know if if we're approaching it from that way i I don't really find much in uh in josh's you know understanding that I would necessarily even disagree with um and that would include the fact that i think um you know an atheist uh you know could probably speak prophetically uh in a sense as well um you know we would believe that all truth is god's truth um and insofar as what they're what they're saying. Um, and you know, Josh, you brought up the, uh, the issue of justice, um, social justice and how, you know, the, the church relates to social justice and, uh, what role it plays and, and all that is a conversation that's going on, um, you know, pretty heavily here in America. Um, and I think that's, that's one mistake we make sometimes is we, um, we, we tend to talk more than we listen. And, um, you know, I think one thing that we can, that we can listen and, and see and understand and and hear is that there are some, uh, people who are not evangelical, who are, who would not even consider themselves Christian, um, or, you know, who by our definitions wouldn't be Christian, um, that would be advocating for, uh, for certain types of, Um, you know, racial equality, um, you know, justice from oppressed peoples, that sort of thing. And we can look to the scriptures um, as, uh, you know, uh, as Christ followers and say, "Okay, we can speak to to the truth of these things with the prophetic authority of the word of God and and find that um, some of the things that uh, people are advocating for um, is, is good. It's right. It's, um, you know, that these are people that, um, you know, as evangelicals, we would say, you know, that God loves that Christ died for. Um, and out of that, um, you know, the, the Bible actually speaks quite a bit to justice. Um, and, uh, you know, about our relationship to, uh, to the stranger, to the sojourner, um, and so, uh, so yeah, I, I think it, again, this is maybe one of those situations where, um, being an American, uh, tends to, um, maybe shape the way we think about it. But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, for Aaron and I, it would be, um, that prophetic voice or prophetic vision would be, uh, rooted in "Thus saith the Lord, um, and we, I think we're less charismatic probably than what you've described yourself as being, uh, growing up. And so I would say, you know, where we don't feel like we have a direct revelation from God and that's the authority that we stand on for us. It would be more, um, this is what God has already said. This is what, um, you know, the kingdom looks like, uh, based on what we know about the Bible and what we know about God. And, you know, from that, thus saith the Lord. So, So, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, All right. So, uh, Josh, let's actually turn our focus a little bit now and uh, jump into deconstruction itself. So um, I instead of speaking for you, I would love to hear your definition of deconstruction and what that journey looked like for you in your life now that we've kind of gotten to know you a little bit and heard some of your thoughts what does it look like for you to take those thoughts that you held growing up to deconstruct them, and then maybe a little bit about how you've uh, you've put those back together into your your current belief system?
2: Right. Yeah, that's a very broad question. There, <laughs> we've
1: got a little <laughs> bit of time here, so. <laughs> um.
2: Deconstruction is a, is a funny word. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it is a very, um, popular word currently in, um, people on the fringe of the evangelical movement, the so-called ex uh, or people who are, as they, as they say, deconstructing. Um, I, n- I never thought much about the word. Um, it was never a big deal for me. Uh, it was more after completing my own process that I realized, wait, hey, wait, wait a second. Most people are saying they're deconstructing, but I think I I just did that. And so that's when I wrote that article um, as a sort of a summary of what I think deconstruction is. Maybe also a, a slight sense of um, uh, irritation, maybe, or concern that people are using the term very callously. Um, originally, deconstruction is a term coined by uh, French atheist philosopher uh, Jacques Derrida and um, he was a master of language a master of playing with with words and so deconstruction is one of those terms we, we now think it's a word but it was not a word of course it's a conjunction of uh, destruction and construction and uh, so what Derrida does with it is something very different from all the um, Constructing evangelicals who are just very angry, uh, and not, not that their anger, by the way, is not justified. I, I get it. I, I feel a lot of rage sometimes for the way I was brought up. Um, even though I love my parents, right? They were the they were the evangelicals who who trained me in evangelicalism. But I I feel anger too, and, um, uh, and I often get angry at the thought of uh, um, the God who provides. And I, and I don't think that is true. So, why did I believe that for like 50 years? Um wasted my life thinking God will provide. Well, God didn't write in front of my face. God never provided. It was just a tough life. Anyway, so deconstruction. For me personally, and I think, Aaron, I think I, I shared some of that story. So, I'm not sure if you want the story or what my take on deconstruction. Um, but my story is that uh, I started having the questions at Bethel Seminary. And it was a very very good environment for asking questions and I met a lot of people who were critical. And I realized I had to do some shifting in my mind. And I had to um, follow down a different track. At the same time, I really did not want to lose my faith. And I really did not want to become an atheist. Um, and I sort of uh, promised myself That whenever I would, you know, be in touch with my parents back in the Netherlands while I was studying in the U.S., that I would always be able to pray with them. And and now I can smile, you know, like that's funny. Why? Why did I promise myself that? But I did, and I found it important. And I can still understand why I found that very important. I I needed to be able to pray with them. And so as I deconstructed further and further, and often people warn for the slippery slope, and maybe it's true. Maybe maybe there is a slippery slope uh, and once you start questioning things um, the card house of theology does collapse and it turns out to be a card house and um, that's not always uh, a nice experience and so the deconstruction can really hit people hard and uh, have traumatic effects. But it it was worth it. It was worth it for me and um, I forgot my train of thought.
1: Um, Well, as as you're going through here, Josh, let me just kind of recap for our listeners so you're saying you were you were raised in a an evangelical home and when you're talking about deconstructing here what you are talking about is having that faith that you grew up with and walking further and further away from that faith and you you'd kind of mention thinking of the of God as a god who provides and that wasn't really your experience and then you were wondering how odd it seemed that you had uh, intended to pray with your parents. So, what the picture I think you're painting here is of a a young man who is walking away from the evangelical Christian faith. And am am I understanding that correctly?
2: Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. one thing I wasn't a young man anymore. So okay. for me, studying uh, uh, theology was a second career option. Okay. And so I was 43 when I uh, left for the U.S. to study um, um, theology and do my M.A. in Christian thought. But you, you're, you're right. Thanks for, for bringing me back to the story. So I always wanted to be able to uh, pray with my parents, and I never wanted to become an atheist. So I slowly took all these pieces apart. And one thing that hugely helped me, and so I saw plenty of evangelicals around me who were deconstructing and turned into atheists, or they turn into Sort of very fuzzy uh, liberals, and and I don't mean that in a disparaging way because I'm sure there is some value there too, and but I thought like, why would I just go that route? That is just like dissolving your entire faith, your faith, the fabric of your faith, and what do you get in in turn? And so for me, the route was to go to the heart of the matter, and as I explained earlier in the podcast, go to Luther. Uh, discover the theology of the cross and see how justification by faith uh, is itself framed by this theology of the cross. And that instead of the Calvinist God who is sovereign, who is in control, who is a monarch, who rules everything, who is the one who speaks and therefore we have the word of God so we know exactly what this God wants and what this God thinks so we can always speak authoritatively, that instead of that Luther's theology And we've completely forgotten that in evangelicalism and and the Protestant movement. It's, It's actually shocking. For Luther, God, or justification by faith, that one thing that he discovered in Romans 3, is like the opposite of what one would expect. That is not supposed to be no one gets a free pass. You need to pay for your sins. And we are sinful, and therefore we are guilty over against a wrathful God or of God, the wrathful God that's in the Calvinist concept, God, and but here it is, God's justice is that you're forgiven, you're free, the guilt is gone; it's, it's over, you're free, that's not normal, so what does that say about the God who self-reveals in Jesus Christ? It's a conundrum, it's a paradox, it, it's, uh, it's an opposite. And so Luther's basic idea of God's self revelation is that God always reveals under God's opposite. So we think God has to be powerful. But what do we get? A baby in a manger with a dirty diaper. We think God will conquer the evil one. What do we get? We get a man on the cross who dies. God dies on the cross. So it is a theology that was completely the sort of the, the, the subversion of of expectation. And what I realized that Kelvin had done is return back to medieval scholastic theology. Now, not by means of Platonic thought, and not by means of Aristotelian thought, but by means of a so-called reference to the Bible as the new or the actual authority. But he basically went back to scholastic theology. And, and so that has woven itself through the, the centuries into evangelicalism as well. And so that is a theology of glory. That is always a glory, a theology that departs from a God who is powerful and a God who gives us enough to know exactly what God wants and what God thinks, so we can speak authoritatively about every subject in society. The Lutheran Reformation, the actual Reformation, gives us a God who is weak, who well, who gives us an announcement of of uh, forgiveness of sin, but. It completely confounds us, and the moment we have a new systematic theology, like you can already count on it that it will collapse because it's a human system, and it will collapse under the weight of grace. And so God is always different from what we expect, and so you get a completely different approach to doing theology. It is like, yeah, we, you know, we do we do theology, we do systematic. I'm, I'm a systematic theologian. Fine, we do systematic theology, but it is always like. You're, you're sort of making a, a paper, flower, origami, or whatever. And you make something, and then it's there, and you say, how beautiful, this helps me, and then you take it apart again. But you're not building a foundational system that from which you build up an edifice or a fort or something like that. Or you're not going to build a Tower of Babel into heaven anymore, because it's not there. Mm-hmm. Whenever you think you've reached God, God is disappeared, because God is not like that. Because we, human beings, can only arrive at a human definition of God. God, the all powerful, God, the only present, God, the all knowing, you know, the old, that's, that's basically a philosophical God, read back into the Bible. By the way, not that there are statements in the Bible that aren't like that. I know they are. Isaiah 40 is a good example. But that God revealed in Christ is is confounded. And so that opened me up for liberal theology, because it said, look, there you have the the, the Enlightenment, there you have conservative theology, and they think they're right. But they're just doubling down on a wrong concept of security, of epistemology, of knowledge. And there you have liberal scholars who are trying to go the other route of applying Christ to culture, and thereby willing to surrender some cherished ideas about God it doesn't matter i can listen to it all i can i can take it with me all and in the end we can only interpret and <clears throat> the more we interpret leaving the mystery of god or the strangeness of god intact the better we have a chance of sort of getting an inkling of what god is like so my deconstruction did not really lead to a rejection of christian faith but a reinterpretation of it but then to quickly finish it up, I also <clears throat> realized there was a very strong connection between the theology of the cross, Luther's theology of the cross, that has had many interpretations over the centuries. Hegel and Kant are basically philosophers who work within the theology of the cross. And, um, and so there's a strong connection between the theology of the cross and the, the, those few theologians in the 60s who declared God to be dead. There's a very strong connection between them. And Bonhoeffer, of course, my guy, whom I studied, is sort of one of the connection points. Because Bonhoeffer was a theologian of the cross. He was deeply rooted in Luther. But at the same time, toward the end of his life in prison, he says in things like, we need religionless Christianity. And the world has come of age. And just, you know, what is happening now to God in the secular society is the same that happened to God on the cross. God is pushed out. We don't need God anymore. What does that mean? So I I went all the way. And so I can embrace, don't be shocked, guys, I can embrace a kind of atheism, but it's not an atheism that says, I know that God doesn't exist. But it's more like a methodological approach that says, whatever constructs we make, we always construct a God. The only God we have is always a construct. So when we construct, let's do it well, let's do it very carefully, and let's do it in such a way that it helps people.
1: Very interesting. I thank you for that overview, and uh, I think that's very consonant with what I understood you to be saying in your in your articles, and thought that was a, a really interesting perspective and a needed understanding for a, especially people in I's circles. As we're looking at people who say that they're doing deconstruction and they're talking about deconstruction, because it's really easy to kind of straw man the things that you just talked through. It's very easy to take what you have worked through and what you've said and to kind of tear that down from our perspective um, without really understanding the ideas that you've worked through, um, understanding the struggles that you've worked through, and then coming out on the other side where you can say things like like you just said, where it, it almost sounds like a, a type of atheism sometimes, but for you it's not. For you, it's that you've you've put it back together and an understanding in such a way um where there there is a God, but it may be radically different from that God that you started with. Um and, and I'll have some some further thoughts, but Carson, given Josh's overview of deconstruction just now, what what would your initial thoughts be?
0: Yeah, so um I would have a a couple questions. One, you mentioned your parents and uh, you know, this commitment you made to yourself to always be able to pray with your parents. Um, One thing that, that I've seen in um, in people who are going through deconstruction um, is that there a lot of times is accompanied uh, with that um, a strong fear of, uh loss of relationships um and i wonder if that was possibly your experience if it was something where um you know it, as much as you were worried about losing your faith were you also worried about um losing those relationships that uh that were a part of that faith and that upbringing
2: for me i think that the the main fear was actually losing god and a um, uh, strong health, healthy, let's say healthy, maybe unhealthy, those of Calvinistic dread of um, letting God go. And then what are the consequences? Because aren't, aren't, am, I, am I not doing the very thing which people have warned me against for years? Like, look, you're backsliding. Look, you are you you haven't gone to seminary. You've gone to cemetery. You know, all those uh, silly jokes uh, that you can hear. Um so that was my main fear, and I think uh, as far as my parents were, uh, were concerned, I was very, um, I was very. They were supporting me financially, and uh, my parents have already lost two children um, out of five. And, and so for me, it was like, you no, know, I, I got to go about it in such a way that my relationship with them is going to be beautiful, and that they can track with me. And um, and I have to say, that in the end. Yeah, I think we're we're working that out. Um, My dad is more conservative than my mom right now, and uh, I would say that my mom is very understanding uh, of where I'm at. And then we have these very interesting conversations where I go all the way, like all the way down, and then all of a sudden she says, "Okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, I'm not following you completely here, okay? Because you know I don't believe all of that." And I said, "Okay, mom, okay, you got to believe your own, you got to." Have your own faith and believe your own things, um, but my mom understands understands very well what I'm doing. But my relationship with my dad is is okay too, and that is I'm I'm grateful for that. But Aaron, if if, uh, if you don't mind, something about deconstruction that um, that that um, came to my mind as you were giving a response is that there's a lot of um, uh, misunderstanding about deconstruction in evangelical circles. And um, I have been a victim of that as well. So when I first encountered the, the word deconstruction, deconstruction was framed as they're questioning the foundations, they're taking the foundations away, they're questioning your knowledge, they're saying you can't know anymore. Um, so, uh, deconstruction was always cast, and then talking about the philosophical deconstruction of the data, Um deconstruction was always cast as an epistemological movement. Postmodernity in evangelicalism is cast as the attack on knowledge, on our body of knowledge, on our security, on our system of knowledge that is coherent, although there is a great deal of Irrationality going on, by the way, a very postmodern irrationality, precisely in evangelical circles, in their doubling down in their support for Donald Trump, just to bring Donald Trump up again. Yeah, we often joke like, "Oh, but they are really postmodern," those evangelicals. But anyway, so so deconstruction is always cast as a. Uh, an epistemological movement that takes away our ability to know anything. That's totally wrong. It's totally not at all what is going on. If you listen to Jacques Derrida, he will say that he thinks institutions are important. He thinks it's important to make claims. So that is not the issue. But he and and others like him have looked back on the Enlightenment and the modern period where it's very strong claim and it's very strong uh, confidence in rationality. And by the way, the evangelical movement and conservative movements are very much modernist in their approach. There is a very strong confidence in the power to reason your way through this. Um, and so um, Derrida and, and other postmodern thinkers, they realize, no, knowledge is never about knowing. Knowledge is always about power. and that is that's once I was able to wrap my mind around it, and it took a couple of years, I'll be honest, I'm a slow thinker. Once you wrap your mind around it, you realize, oh, so evangelicalism, let's just get to the topic. Evangelicalism doubling down on the inerrancy of Scripture and all the other things they are doing, that is not for the sake of truth, even though they really think it is, but it is for the sake of not being... Not relinquishing their power, their hold on their section of society or their own security. And so, what is deconstruction? Deconstruction is basically taking a topic or an institution or a country or a theme, and you start unpacking what people have said about it. And then you start analyzing why people are saying A about B and how that has come to be and why that is so. And then deconstruction goes back, goes back to somewhere where you can no longer say, this is just people interpreting, but you say, this is the bare naked truth. For instance, what Derrida does, he goes all the way down and he says, the other, the other over against me, my neighbor is indeconstructible. My neighbor stands in front of me and I have to face the task of honoring my neighbor as a neighbor. So basically, Derrida is about justice. Maybe that is about love. And I, so I, that was like a major insight that occurred to me, like after even writing my article, by the way, Aaron, that is, that's a recent thing that has hit home for me. Deconstruction is never about taking power away from people. Yes, it is. But for the sake of justice.
1: That's a really interesting thought, Josh. So if I understand you correctly um and i and i think that the example that you give of the neighbor standing in front of you is a really powerful one because the neighbor isn't going anywhere no matter no matter what you do that neighbor's going to be standing in front of you and then we would probably all of us but i know at least carson and i would say that um if jesus has anything to say to us it's love your god and love your neighbor and if you remove the neighbor from that equation you're removing a very uh, a very pivotal part of what Christ is telling us to do and then the other thing I think I understood you to be saying is that um epistemology there like our theory of of knowledge I think what you mean by that is um that we have ways of understanding truth that we have understand the ways of understanding the knowledge that we hold um but I think that you see modern evangelicalism is using that truth and that knowledge for power to get what they want as opposed to loving people, especially loving their neighbor in this example here. Um, And that sounds like something that we might call like an, an idol in the way that we uh, in the way that we use knowledge and power, especially politically. That's something that you've used as an example a, a few times here is that it, it seems like one of your main critiques of, Evangelicalism here is that it's become very political. Um, We have constructed our systems in such a way that we use them to wield power, and that it could be our neighbor who suffers. It could be those people that we're supposed to be loving who suffer as the result of the way that we've constructed these systems of knowledge and thought and power. And it seems like one of the things that you've done is in your life is to try to think through those things in such a way where you, you tear down the negative about those and that you're in the process of trying to put it back together in such a way where love and others are central to your thought pattern. Is that, is that kind of a fair recap of what you said?
2: That's a fair recap. And um, you mentioned Jesus. Jesus in a way does deconstruction. I'm not, I'm not going to cast him as the, the maverick um, postmodern philosopher who's uh, bordering on atheism. But what you see Jesus do is totally, constantly subvert accepted standards, systems of thought. For instance, in Jesus, hell is not something that the pagans go to, the Gentiles go to. No, hell is something that believers should be worried about. Constantly, constantly. So people who want to defend hell will say, well, nobody talked more about hell than Jesus. And then the answer is, yes, and he used it as a metaphor to warn believers. So it's a subversion. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, in that you fulfill the law and the Lord your God, blah, 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 Then he is basically stripping the whole system back to its bare basics. And he says, this is what it's all about. So Jesus brings it down to just two statements. And um, so he does a lot of deconstruction, for
1: mm-hmm. sure. So, Josh, you you kind of, I think you understand what Carson and I believe, like sitting here talking to you today. If there was something that you would say to us, like, this is, if there's something you think we're getting wrong right now, what what would be maybe some of the main takeaways that you would want us to be thinking through and that from your perspective, you would say, hey, guys, you seem like nice people, but maybe here are some blind spots that you might want to be considering. Do you have any of those thoughts from your perspective?
2: Yeah, yeah, I do. So so I think that, um, and by the way, not to speak from a moral high ground here, right, guys, <laughs> I, but I, I'm addressing evangelicals now. And so I think a lot about evangelicals. And um so evangelicals would be really helped if they would understand that their claim that the Bible is the word of God. No, let me let me frame it in a different way. Old theology can be deconstructed. It can be stripped away as interesting or as well, that's an interpretation or blah, 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 blah. And so you can do this with the Bible as the word of God. And not in an atheist way or in a liberal way to just destroy faith or whatever. But look at this, there's a good theological reason, reason why the Bible isn't the Word of God, because the Word became flesh. And if the Word has become flesh, and then we later say that the Bible is a book, and that book is the Word of God, then we, we have operated, we have done something to the flesh. We have we have stripped the flesh of its power. We said we need to find power somewhere, so we're gonna locate it there, in that book, so we can have access to that power and that authority. So if you want to be honest, you have to say, well, the Bible cannot be, cannot possibly be the word of God because the word has become flesh, has dwelt among us, and is now dwelling in the community through the power of the Spirit. And so to locate authority back in that book is making a crucial mistake. It is the mistake of the anxiety of sort of losing the reins and losing control, so we need to have it somewhere. A book so we can manage the operation but it's a crucial mistake and and the other one um, would be um, justification by faith um, that's such a beautiful one I, I said a few things already about Luther and his discovery of justification by faith so what it means for us as evangelicals justification by faith is that you trust the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and that he paid for your sins, and therefore you're restored in relationship with God, you personally. So it's an individualized gospel, it's a fertile, verticalized gospel, and the whole notion of justice is, has been deprived of the concept. I kind of wonder why, and my take on it is that we as evangelicals, and I, and I totally include myself here, uh, we as evangelicals are our middle class, we're white, and we're not interested in the gospel that actually economically liberates us. No, we need a gospel that solidifies our safe and secure position in our suburban homes. And so it's about spirituality, but not about justice. But for Luther, when he discovered justification by grace, it was, I'm just, I am a just person for free. And so he told everybody and everybody, The peasants and the farmers, they said, we're free in Christ. And so they started the revolt in the early 1520s. And then Luther made the crucial mistake of siding with nobility to squash down the revolt. But the basic idea of justification by faith was that in Christ people are free. And nobody can be their lord anymore. And they are free to be economically and become economically who they are. So we've completely lost that. It's completely it's for us it's a theological term it's a technical term but the the, the, the revolutionizing effect of that of that doctrine or that discovery is basically gone hmm.
1: very interesting um so carson what what thoughts would you have about what josh has just gone over here Um, yeah. I mean,
0: I, I hear a lot of similarities between, uh, some of the things that, that Josh is saying, uh, versus other conversations, um, I've had with, um, not only with atheists, but, uh, other, uh, former evangelicals who are undergoing, uh, deconstruction. There seems to be, um, you know, definitely some, um, uh, some common threads there. Um, you know, I, I think, um, the thing for me <clears throat> that, um, as one who's not gone through deconstruction, uh, but who, you know, uh, you know, definitely wants to, to learn, uh, as, as much as I can. Um, if I do believe that all truth is God's truth. Um, the, the one thing that, uh, I, I think, you know, if I were to, to study this some more, that would, um, that would require some more reflection on my part is, um, you know, the, the locus of authority being in the word of God and, and the, um, and the reasons behind that. Um, you know, um, Josh, when you were talking about, uh, the word become flesh, one of the things that, um, that came to me, um, you know, and, and, my thought process was, uh, the, the passage of the great commission, right. Where, uh, Jesus is saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore. Right. Um, and so, you know, hearing you talk kind of brought up the question in my mind, well, okay. Is it possible for the word of God, um, to be the final authority if all authority, in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Um, and, and theologically, I would say at least initially my, my answer would be, well, yes, because, um, Jesus himself says that, you know, uh, that it's the scriptures, um, that, that speak of him. Right. So, um, so it, you know, I think, as we move forward, Aaron, we, you and I, um, you know, one of the things that, um, that might, um, that might be beneficial to kind of unpack and and explore is the idea of, um, a biblical authority. And I, I'm so glad, uh, you know, Josh, that you brought up, uh, uh the the idea of you know the inerrancy battle back in the nineties the and you know all that kind of stuff because that's very much in um you know kind of the subculture that Aaron and I are in um as evangelicals but also as Southern Baptists is um you know this is our theological heritage so to speak. Um and so our our thoughts and our theology are very uh wrapped up in that um And, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm actually grateful for. Um, but the, but I do think it, it would be interesting Aaron to, to discuss and to, uh, to explore, you know, the practical implications of that, because, uh, one place that I definitely agree with you, Josh, is that, um, the, the word being the authority can't just be, a, a means of control, um, that in order for the, the word to accomplish, um, what God set out for it to accomplish, um, it actually does need to lead to freedom and, uh, to the, uh, betterment of, um, of individuals lives and, uh, a change, uh, uh, for the better. Uh, it, it should lead to um, ultimately economic improvement. It should lead to societal improvement. Um, and, and so um, I, I, I do think that those are, you know um, those are critiques that we need to have an answer for if it's something that we're, we can't just disregard it out of hand. Um, and I think that at least from the people that I've spoken to, Um, that's where a lot of deconstruction finds its roots is the fact that we have good critiques from outside the church, good critiques and good questions being asked, um, that a lot of times don't have an answer, unfortunately, or at least that nobody has worked to develop one or offer one or think through those things with somebody, uh, that's undergoing, uh, deconstruction. Um, so, you know, for the betterment of the church and ultimately for the betterment of society, yeah, I would agree. Um, I think the Bible has to, uh, lend itself to those things. And I think that would be uh, a really good topic for us to explore together. Moving yeah, forward.
1: absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, so the, the first segment, uh, the first podcast we did on deconstruction was with, uh, Johnny and he did a, a great job of going through it from his perspective as someone who had experienced some deconstruction and then come back to very much a a traditional evangelical way of thinking through it and then Josh has given us a i think a really fine counterbalance here of someone who has come out on the other side of deconstruction in a a markedly different way and Josh I'll be honest I think you've given us some really great things to think through and um it's been very valuable to hear uh, I think the best version of the argument from your side, um, because like I said, it's very important to us that we don't just straw man what you're saying and that we do hear it from you and that we hear of a very good representation of why you believe what you believe and how you've come to believe it. Um, and I think that you've offered some some very good and very fair critiques today, not only of um, the way that we think through knowledge and epistemology, but also of uh, the structures of American evangelicalism, um, especially in regard to power structures and politics. Um, I'll be very honest; those are those are things that I think probably I have <laughs> I have room to grow in those areas, um, and it's it's very important that we hear from voices who are not just um, just one in the same with what we believe. So um,
0: yeah. And, and I think if I can
1: jump in there Aaron. like, I think one thing
0: that we want our audience to know, and I I would say um, by extension, you know, we want you definitely to know Josh is um, when we, when we say we want to hear from you um, we, we don't want to be the kind of people I think that, that want to hear from you with some ulterior motive. Um, like we don't want to hear from you so we can deconstruct you. We want to hear you. Right. And, oh, no. um, so
2: I, I heard a lot of openness. Uh, I'm hearing a lot of openness, uh, with both you guys. Yeah. So I think it's lo- lovely conversation.
0: Yep. So, uh, I, again, uh, we just want to thank you for, uh, for being a part of this with us and, uh, thank you for your, uh, for your thoughts and insights. And, uh, you know, we definitely want to uh, take those. And I think, you know, to Aaron's point, um, those are good places for us to start exploring um, areas
1: uh, of growth as well. So, yeah. Um, so, Josh, sure. any any final words that you'd like to offer before, uh, before we all sign off for the day? No, I'm good. I think I, I
2: said a lot of things. <laughs> I'm
1: done. Fair enough. Well, well, listen. Thank you so much for your time today. It's um uh, like I said, I didn't know you very well before we started this conversation. It's been wonderful to hear your your story and uh, and your openness. And uh, we just can't thank you enough for your your time today and being willing to uh, to talk through this this life journey that you've had.
2: Thanks so much, Aaron and Carson. It was a great convo.
1: Absolutely. All right, Josh. Will you take care? wonderful to meet you and I uh, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day as well see you, Carson thanks you. you guys